Let's turn together, if you're not already there, to Psalm 130. We have taken this summer to work through some of the Psalms. There's, of course, 150 of them, so it would take us a long time to get through every single one. But we have taken a brief break from our teaching through the book of Acts to come together this summer and spend time in the Psalms. Psalms are incredibly important for us as worshipers, as I've been saying to you throughout our time this summer. We are learning as we come to the Psalms what it looks like to be a holistic and healthy worshiper. Not just with our actions, not just with our, our will, our volition, but the inside part of us, the part that is, that is usually unseen. Our emotions, our affections and desires, The Psalms have been given to us by the good and kind providence of God to see saints from a long time ago worshiping in wholeness, body, and soul, learning to respond to God in faith. And then today, as we come to Psalm 130, what we will find is that repentance is an essential component of being a healthy worshiper. It's an essential component, first of all, and not to give too much away, but it's an essential component, first of all, because we serve a perfectly holy God. And though God loves us, God hates sin. And he's able to simultaneously do that. We'll talk about how that's possible in just a few moments. So it's essential for us to lead lives of repentance because we serve a perfectly holy God. Likewise, it's essential that we lead lives of repentance because when we don't, as the people of God, we will be miserable. When we are not experiencing healthy fellowship and communion with God, we will not be happy. And in fact, that really does describe the way most of the world is, why it is like it is. Ever since the fall and the garden, humanity has been seeking to establish its own righteousness and to diminish its sinfulness. And that kind of action never ultimately leads to any kind of wholeness or happiness. Psalm 130 is given to us as a gift to teach us what repentance looks like and to give us the hope that God will always, with joy, forgive his covenant people. So Psalm 130 is a psalm for repenting, and hoping. As you see at the beginning of Psalm 130, the superscription, it is a song of ascents. We have dealt with a few of the song or psalms of ascent this summer. By way of review, the psalms of ascent would have been sung by the pilgrims, the Jewish worshipers as they went up to Jerusalem three times a year to worship God at the three major festivals of Passover and Pentecost and Tabernacles. And these three feasts, when the people would come up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was at a higher elevation than the rest of the surrounding countryside, as they would come up to Jerusalem, they would sing these psalms together. And this was an important one in their ascent, their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. For as they came to Jerusalem, that was the place where God's presence especially dwelt. As people of the new covenant, we no longer need a temple for the Holy Spirit in fullness has taken up residence in us individually and in our places of worship, our our church corporate. But back then, God placed his presence in the temple. And as they came up to Jerusalem, they would have been reminded that they were going to the holy place where God's holy presence dwelt. They would have brought animals with them 
many of them, or brought money to buy animals, especially at the time of Passover, to slay a lamb and shed its blood to remind them of what God had done for them at the night of Passover when he slayed all the firstborn of Egypt and passed over Israel, showing them covenant favor. The blood of that lamb stood in their place in a sense. It atoned for them. It it stood between them and God. And it pointed forward to a time when the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the promised Messiah would come as our Passover Lamb and lay His life down for us, hanging between heaven and earth, between men and God, Jesus taking our place as our substitute. So as they would come up to Jerusalem for this first feast of the year at Passover, sin would have been on their mind. Judgment and punishment would have occupied their thoughts. And so to prepare their hearts for that time, they would have sung these psalms of ascent, including Psalm 130, to prepare them to repent as they came. Psalm 130 is given to us still today, thousands of years later, to remind us of the importance and necessity of repentance and the faithful truth that God will always forgive his repentant covenant people. As one of the elders in this church, along with the rest of the elders, shepherds, pastors, overseers, one of the things that we are consistently looking for as we disciple this church family is a growth in both repentance and faith. We want to see out of our people, out of you, that you are growing in your grasp of the gospel. We are looking for that in ourselves as well. One of the clearest signs, if not the clearest sign, that one has grasped and understands the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we will not run away from faith and repentance, but we will run to faith and repentance. For just as Jesus was our only hope for conversion, for justification, Jesus is our only hope in the here and now. So any plea, any hope we have for forgiveness has nothing to do with any innate righteousness, anything that we can muster on our own. Our only hope is in the righteousness of Jesus. And as we day by day, even actually moment by moment, renew faith in him, repent of our sins and turn back to him, we are demonstrating that we actually understand the hope of the good news of the gospel. For the gospel of Jesus Christ is not do your part and Jesus will do his. The message of the gospel is that Jesus has done everything necessary for our salvation, past, present, and future And as we turn to him, again, even moment by moment, in faith and in repentance, we demonstrate that we have no confidence in the flesh, that we are not pursuing any disastrous and damaging self-righteousness, but instead turning to Jesus, who delights in offering us his righteousness, and will do so faithfully throughout our pilgrimage, just like these Israelite pilgrims from thousands of years ago. So let's read together Psalm 130. This is God's word. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. 
My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. May God bless to us the reading of his word. First thing we find today in verses 1 through 2 is a plea for mercy. Whoever wrote this psalm, and we're not quite sure who and when it was written by, what date it was written in, and for what occasion it was written for, it was eventually taken up to be one of these pilgrim songs. And so as we make our pilgrimage through this world, a pilgrimage which is marked at intervals by success and by failure, by faithful worship and by faithless sin, we come to this psalm and we find words for, for our pilgrimage. We If we will live in this life uh, any length of time, we will experience those intervals just like Israel did. And it was good for them to have the rhythms that they did. It was good for them three times a year to come up to Jerusalem to, to build into the very fabric of how they worshiped the most important things for them to consider. That there was one true, all powerful God. That that one true, all-powerful God was loyal to them and would keep covenant with them. That despite the fact that he had shown them great covenant faithfulness, they still turned from him to other gods. But that as they came to him in faith and repentance, he continued to forgive them and show them favor. As they came up to Jerusalem these three times a year, the rhythms of that were good for them. Our rhythms look a little bit different as new covenant pilgrims. In some senses, we do this even a little bit more often when we come together, for the most part, weekly to worship on Sunday as God's covenant people or in small groups or in the other weekly rhythms of your life. You're reminded of these very same things. We serve one true, all-powerful God who has shown us covenant love, who hates our sin and yet loves us anyway. That's why we gather together, to be reminded of these same things in our pilgrimage. Notice in verses one through two that the psalmist, the pilgrim, is crying out from the sea. The metaphor is as one who is, who is caught in the sea. Let's turn together, if you don't mind, to Jonah chapter 2. Most of you are well familiar with the story of Jonah. Jonah was a man that was called by God to go to Nineveh, and in Nineveh to tell the Ninevites that they were sinful, that God was calling them to repentance Jonah tried to run away from God. He didn't want to do this. Jonah was, in many ways, one of the early biblical racists. He hated the Ninevites. He wanted nothing to do with them. But foreshadowing how Jesus would bring his good news to all nations everywhere, he wanted Jonah to go to this wicked city of Nineveh so that they could turn to him as a foreshadowing of what one day would come when all the nations would turn to Jesus. So Jonah tries to escape in a boat. A great storm comes, and Jonah realizes that he's the guilty one causing this this cataclysmic storm, so he tells the sailors to throw him overboard. Eventually, they do, and as you know the story, a great fish comes and swallows Jonah at the end of chapter 1. And so he's in there three days and three nights. Verse 1 of chapter 2, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, like the grave, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. 
and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This reminds us of what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 130. Because of the psalmist's sin, and though specifically it is not spelled out, we can insert our own experience here into verses 1 through 2. There are times whenever we have turned so far from God that we feel we are in the depths of the sea and we are in distress and we feel distant from God, like Jonah. And sometimes not only our sin itself, but the consequences of our sin. Sin that has gone unrepented of. Sins that continue to be practiced. When sin takes root like that, not only do we experience separation from God, but we experience all the consequences of our sin. Separation from our spouses, from our children, from our friends, civil, societal, cultural fracture. We see this all around us. If we have lived long enough, we have not only felt distant from God because of our transgressions, because of breaking his laws, because we have not obeyed him, but also because of all the things that compound upon our choices to sin. When it really comes down to it, one of the things that God is teaching us pilgrims over time is that not only is sin a a transgression, an offense against God, the one true God who gets to make all the rules, But when we transgress his commands, when we transgress his expectations, we're also miserable. And and God in his goodness is teaching us that. That's part of the difficult lesson of the pilgrimage. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12 teaches us that God disciplines every son that he receives And it's not because he hates us. Much the opposite. It's it's because he loves us. And God in his great mercy is teaching us pilgrims along the way that when we turn to sin, not only are we offending the God that we should love, but when we turn to such sins, we are actually miserable. Sure, the initial taste of the sin may be sweet to the tongue, but the aftertaste is always bitter, and it's never worth it. I think the psalmist writes with this sort of thinking in mind. I have sinned, and I feel so far from you that it feels like I'm in the depths and I'm drowning And that is compounded by the fact that the consequences of my sin are drastic. But the psalmist, in his misery, doesn't turn inward, doesn't seek to rectify his problems or clean himself up to make himself acceptable to the God he has offended. He just cries out for mercy, just like Jonah. That was Jonah's only hope. Jonah's in the belly of this great fish with seaweed wrapped around his head and he feels like he's going to die at any moment. 
what must that have been like? I mean, it wasn't like he had like a big lighter with him and he could see around. It would have been pitch black. It would have stunk. Certainly he would have been blowing all the way around. I'm sure there would have been stomach acid which stung him and hurt him. And he would have thought, I'm going to die in the belly of a fish because I wouldn't obey God, because I, I thought I knew better. And he felt like that was his end. Sometimes in our sinful patterns, our proclivities towards sin, we feel this way too. And so it is not unlikely that, that someone here today or more than a someone is here today and, and you feel like this. You feel like you are distant from God. And one of the forked tongue hissing lies of the evil one is that God doesn't love you anymore, that he will no longer forgive you, or that you need to do some sort of self-rectification, some sort of personal moral transformation to make yourself acceptable to God. But I say to you, my brother or sister, nothing could be further from the truth. That is a lie from hell. Your only hope is to plead for mercy. And there's some boldness here if you think about it in verse 2. Oh Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive. There's an expectation. There's a hint here that this pilgrim understood the patterns that sort of went like this. I, I sin, I turn from God, I turn back to God. I, I sin, I turn from God, I, I turn back to God. And our pilgrimage is marked by such patterns, is it not? Where we dabble, we try sin, even the same sins over and over, knowing full well that the aftertaste will be bitter, that we'll experience joyless separation from God and from our fellow men. And then when we come to our senses, much like Jonah did in the belly of the fish, we cry out for mercy because we know that he has forgiven us in the past and he will forgive us again. So whether today you are dabbling in sins that are new for you, for you're seeking for a thrill and you mistakenly believe that the sweet taste of such sins will bring you pleasure, or you are dabbling or even more so giving yourself over to old sins which have gripped you for years, I say to you, my beloved, these things will not satisfy you. They do not glorify the God who made us and rescued us by his grace. And so let us turn to him with a plea for mercy, and he will forgive. How do we know that? That's what verses 3 through 4 teach us. We plea for mercy because there is hope of favor. The psalmist says to us pilgrims today, verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. This sinful pilgrim of verses 1 through 2 sends up an SOS. This, this universal code that sailors send out. This Morse code signal that says, we're dying. Originally, this came from German sailors. It was taken up universally by sailors all over the world. Us English speakers have turned it into something like Save Our Souls SOS. The SOS of the sinking pilgrim of verses 1 through 2 is to God because this pilgrim knows, this sinking pilgrim far from God knows that God will show him favor. If God were to take his ledger book and read out our offenses, could we stand? If our sins had the final word, could we stand before a perfectly holy God? 
These pilgrims, as they were going up to Jerusalem, singing Psalm 130, knew that they could not rectify their problem. There was nothing in them that made them acceptable intrinsically to God. So they call out to the God who is not keeping a ledger of their sins and instead sought to bless them. Because, verse 4, there is forgiveness. And a really interesting statement the psalmist makes at the end of verse 4, with God there is forgiveness that he may be feared. This is Yahweh, their covenant God, verse 3. And second half of verse 3, this is Adonai. This is their powerful sovereign God. The psalmist, the pilgrim, calls out to to his covenant-keeping God and to the sovereign God of the universe We should fear you, but not just because you are powerful, because you are a forgiving God. Now that that strikes our ears a little funny. Surely we should fear God because he's powerful, but to fear him because he's merciful, how does that fit? Look with me if you don't mind at Matthew chapter 18. passage is pretty familiar to many of you. The chapter begins with the disciples wondering who is the greatest in the kingdom. It sort of suggests that they had pride problems. Jesus goes on in verses 15 through 20 to teach them to forgive each other. Peter then comes in verse 21, sort of incredulous because Peter was still a self-righteous jerk at this point in many ways. He says, Lord, how often will I forgive my brother, this one who sins against me? And then Peter tries to pass himself off as merciful because he says, as many as seven times, the sort of number of completion, fulfillment. Jesus says to him to up the ante, and parenthetically, Peter, you don't really get it. I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. And he's not literally saying once you get to 491, you don't forgive anymore. Jesus is just making this a sort of perfect number. In other words, you must lead lives of forgiveness. And then he tells a story. In verse 23, Jesus says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. This number in today's terms was in the billions. Verse 28, when that same servant went out, this servant who had been forgiven so much, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. In today's terms, that was still a pretty large sum of money, but infinitesimal when compared to what he had owed the master. So he seized this other debtor and began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father, Jesus says, will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus is teaching here that the ethic of the kingdom of heaven is that God is not just willing to forgive his indebted servants, but delights in doing so, for the debt that we owe is monumental. 
It's, it's incalculable. If all the ledger books could be compiled one on top of another, our debts would scream out guilty to us. And yet the kingdom of heaven is so shot through with mercy, so full of grace that God is not just willing to forgive, he delights in forgiving his servants. I think that's what the psalmist is getting at in Psalm 130, verse four. A God who is powerful, a God who has has laws that we should not transgress, a God who punishes transgressors of his law, certainly he is to be feared. But God wants us to worship in a way that is not just dread fear, not just fear that at any moment he might vaporize us, but he wants us to reverence him, to love him. That's what the psalmist is getting at, I believe, in Psalm 130, verse 4. The plea for mercy of verses 1 through 2 is grounded in verses 3 through 4. That the God who calls us to worship him wants us to reverence him. Yes, with, with respect, with awe, but also with grateful love. And the psalmist, who seems to be drowning in the depths of his own sin and the consequences of his sin, remembers that God is faithful and just to forgive and calls out to him. And of course we know because of the new covenant that all of this is grounded in our hope in Christ. We referenced these verses recently, but I want to come back to them today. Let's look together in Colossians chapter 2. Verse 13, the Apostle Paul says, And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. When Jesus died for us, suspended between God and man, he didn't just die that we might potentially be saved. Jesus died that his people would definitely be saved. You were on his mind. I was on his mind. And all of the transgressions of Lee Davis, who would live 2,000 years later, And each of you who have trusted him, each of your sins were in essence written out on a ledger and then nailed to that cross and soaked in his blood. And we are no longer under condemnation. For though those sins call for our condemnation, even the least of them, let alone the greatest of them, and compiled upon each other, sin upon sin upon sin, we deserve God's wrath. But Jesus took our place as our substitute to bear that wrath and to cancel out the ledger which called for our condemnation. So I say to you, my dear brother and sister, if you have trusted Jesus, if you are hoping in him today, do not linger in your sin. Don't stay there. Don't seek moral rectitude. Don't seek to clean yourself up and make yourself acceptable to him because you will continue to drown. The waves will go over your head. You won't be able to draw a breath and you'll feel like you're going down to the grave. But, but God's people, the people who have been rescued by Jesus, they know that he will forgive, which is what 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10 proclaim to us, if you'd like to turn there with me. 
John wrote to Christians who were being infiltrated by false teachers, who were minimizing sin and eclipsing Jesus. So John, the beloved disciple, writes to these Christians and says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. John wrote as a pilgrim who had experienced these intervals of sin and falling away from God's favor and then turning back. So he wrote to these Christians to teach them to turn back to God. And so we ourselves today, years on as pilgrims, come back to these same words of hope. And like the psalmist in Psalm 130, we we plead for mercy because we hope in his favor. As we look back together in Psalm 130, as you come to verses 5 through 6, what do we see but another plea for mercy? So this psalm has has purposeful repetition. There's repetition of themes to drive home a point. So verses 1 through 2, we plead for mercy because we hope in the favor of God. And the psalmist, once again, is teaching the pilgrims who will sing this song headed up to Jerusalem for the feasts. Remember, you're a sinner. Trust in God. So the psalmist says, verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. A word of pardon. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. What's he talking about here? Well, around Jerusalem, where the pilgrims were headed for the feasts, at night there were watchmen who, who stood around the walls, around the ramparts, watching for enemies to protect the city from invasion. There were also Levitical, priestly watchmen who would go out before dawn and wait for the sun to break on the eastern horizon. And when it began to break, they would go to the temple and perform sacrifices. So whether the psalmist here is talking about military officials who were watching over the city for its protection or priestly officials who were waiting for the dawn to break so the morning sacrifices could be made, it doesn't seem to make much difference. For the idea seems to be this. When dawn breaks, we'll know we're okay. When dawn breaks, when the sun begins to rise... When the light begins to to creep over the eastern walls of the city, we'll know that that we're safe, that we've made it through another night. And now that we have reached the morning, we will offer our sacrifices to God who will once again cause His face to shine upon us. When I was a kid, we would camp a lot out in the Rocky Mountains. So... um, we had a, an Airstream trailer. I've told you some of these stories before. And I have wonderful memories of these days of my life. Um, at nighttime, though, we didn't have power. So we had like a car battery that the, that the trailer could run on a little bit. But um, pretty much we had to use flashlights at night. So we would sit around the fire for several hours and you know, roast marshmallows and things like that. And then we'd go back to our bunks in our trailer and we would read books. And I read cowboy stories. And specifically, I read Louis L'Amour cowboy stories. Anybody read Louis L'Amour growing up? I just read one again the other day that I've read like five times. I love cowboy stories. So often somewhere in the story, you have these cowboys that are hanging out together. And he always wrote about cowboys who were not just good at roping steers, but they were also really good with rifles and pistols and so forth. They were like the fastest draws in town. And uh, so they'd be out, you know, rounding up cattle and driving them along so they could make money. But as they were watching their cattle at night, somebody had to keep watch because they were in Native American country. 
And as we know, there was conflict between the cowboys and Native Americans. There were also other rustlers, um, people who were like them but were seeking to steal their cows. And this wasn't good because if they didn't take enough cows to market, they wouldn't make enough money. And so at night, they would take turns sitting up and they would watch the cows. And, and it was like horrible to fall asleep because if somebody snuck into the camp and, and killed you or took some of your cows, then you were a giant failure. But the, the last person, the person who took the last watch, was responsible for making coffee and making beans and maybe some bacon if they had it, and then waking the other guys up so they could go about their day. And every morning when they woke up and they didn't have an arrow in their torso or some of their cows weren't missing, it had been another successful night. I love reading stories like that. It's just kind of an escape for me. And so those were fun days for me to be out in the mountains and read about cowboy stories. But, but it's kind of like that in our own lives. E- each day we wake up and we're not cast off. Each day that we come back to, to God and, and he hasn't abandoned us as a reminder that he's full of plentiful love. And so the psalmist, once again in verses five through six, is, is pleading for mercy. He remembers other mornings, mornings where he woke up and, and he was not cast off. Mornings where he remembered where he had been in the sea, seemingly drowning, far from God, but now he experienced the favor for, of God. And, and so he, he's pleading with God, Lord, bring a new day, a better day, a day where I'm forgiven, a, a day where I do not give myself over to these, to these sins, a day where I, I don't believe the lies of Satan that, that the aftertaste won't be bitter when in, in truth I know it will. God, bring about a day where I experience your favor and I walk with you in faithfulness. It reminds us of what David prayed back in Psalm 51, if you'd like to turn there with me. David wrote one of the most well-known psalms, and he didn't just make it vague. He could have written Psalm 51 and said, this is a psalm for people who sin sometimes. The superscription at the beginning of Psalm 51, which for most of these psalms would have been original, clarifies for us that this psalm was written when he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. In verse 7, David says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David was honest. I mentioned to you a while ago that One of the things that we are looking for in in discipling this church family is that all of us are growing in repentance and faith. So let's, let's take stock for a minute today. When your sin is exposed, let's let's talk to the, to the young ones among us for a little bit today. When, when your sin is exposed by mom and dad or by a school teacher or something like that, what do you do? Do you minimize it? Do you, do you try to explain it away? Do you, do you flip it and make it about the person who's, who's bringing it to light when really it's about you? Do you make excuses? So I'll take the spotlight off the young ones for a while. What about the rest of us? We do these same things, don't we? As you think about your relationship with your spouse, your husband or your wife, when you have to have a hard conversation, which none of us like, right? We like to talk about relatively happy things. None of us like to have difficult conversations, especially when we've messed up. What do you do? What's your pattern? Are you defensive? Do you seek to make things seem not quite so bad? Do you make excuses? When your sin is exposed, do you, do you turn it back on your spouse 
as though it's their fault or the things that they do are worse than the things that you do? Or do you compare yourself to people around you because even though you know you've messed up, you're not as bad as them? Notice the words of David here in Psalm 51, verses 7 through 12. He, he doesn't run away. He doesn't minimize. He doesn't explain away. He doesn't self-justify. He recognizes his sin and, and the consequences of it. He says in verse 4, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He was honest. A person who understands Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, those verses we read just a few moments ago, that the ledger of our sins was nailed to the cross of Jesus and is soaked with his blood, and rather than being under condemnation, we experience his favor. If that's true of us, we should be the most undefensive, honest, transparent people possible. This means that when somebody brings to light something that you did wrong, even if they do it in the wrong way, even if they're sort of wrong in their estimation of what you did, a humble person is able to say, you're right, and I have no excuse. In fact, a person who really understands the righteousness of Jesus might actually say something like this. You know what? What you're saying about me is right, and you don't even know half the story. That's what a humble person who is trusting in the righteousness of Jesus, that's how they act. Their relationships consequently are marked by harmony, both with God and with each other. They're the kind of people you like to be around. They're the kind of people who don't self-justify. They're the kind of people who aren't defensive. They're the kind of people who don't hide. They're the kind of people who actually welcome correction because they know their righteousness is not consistent in their efforts, but in what Jesus has done. The only way that we will recognize that we should plead for mercy is because righteousness has been granted outside of us. And so just like the psalmist pleaded for mercy in verses one through two, because he hoped for the favor of God, he again pleads for mercy, waiting for it, watching for it, waiting for the dawn to break when God would once again break in with mercy because that's what God always does, verses seven through eight. He always does this. And so now it becomes first person plural. Verses one through six, first person singular. I need this. I need you to forgive me. I know that you will. And then, much like David, he begins to teach. A repentant person who trusts in the righteousness of Jesus Christ is an instructor of others. And so now it becomes first person plural. Oh, Israel, we, to fill in the gaps, we must hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. This is unbreakable grace. And with him is plentiful redemption. God is not miserly when it comes to dispensing grace. He delights in doing so. And let me up the ante a bit for what I've said today. Not only as we are helping you in your discipleship, are we looking for signs of repentance, but one of the other marks of maturity that we should be looking for in each other is that we actually delight in dispensing forgiveness when repentance is practiced. That's like, that's like mega maturity. So you'll know you're maturing in your faith when you turn away from defensiveness and instead are quick to repent. You'll know you're really growing in your faith when the people around you are practicing such repentance and you are not only willing to forgive them, but you delight in doing so. And what if, what if this church family was marked not only by a willingness to repent and not hide behind destructive self-defensiveness, 
but even more so was willing to forgive each other and more than willing, desirous of doing so. So that when our brother or sister or spouse or child comes to us and says, I have offended you, please forgive me of my transgression. We not only say, I am willing to forgive you, but we say, I delight in forgiving you because my God delights in forgiving me. What a community this would be if we were not only marked by a willingness, an eagerness to repent, but an eagerness to forgive as well. And what's the end, verse eight? When we turn to God in in faith and humility, what does he do? He redeems us from all iniquities. That's our God. This psalm is given to us to, to teach us that our God is full of favor and delights in forgiving us. In Psalm 103, verses 8 through 14, the psalmist encapsulates what this feels like. He says in verse 8, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth... So great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So we turn to God who is merciful to forgive. And then we call each other to lead such lives. So we plead for mercy, hoping always in his favor. May God make us a people that trusts in his steadfast love. May we be honest about our sin. May we keep short accounts with God. May we hope in Christ who has canceled the record of debt against us. And may this be a people that rests in the gospel and applies it liberally with joy to each other. Let's pray.